Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. My name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology. Today I have Scott Timke, uh, who is a political economist of digital technology and democratic life uh, with Research ICT Africa, and is maintaining his affiliation with research asso- as research associate of the University of Johannesburg's Center for Social Change and an affiliate with the Center for Information Technology and Public Life at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, Scott. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction, Michael. Um, very glad to be here today and to be able to tell you and your uh, listeners about uh, my new work. Yes, and the book that we're here to talk about today is The Political Economy of Fortune and Misfortune by Bristol University Press 2023. This was a very interesting book. We talked the last time on your previous book, but it's great to have you back on the show now and to talk about fortune and misfortune. Well, I'm, I'm glad to start being a bit of a regular. Um, yeah, this, this is maybe a bit of my good luck. And maybe that's a way to segue into some of the, the questions that that uh, will come my way. Yeah, so so what brought you to writing this book to start off with? So I suppose there are several co- kinds of tribu- tributaries that uh, shaped my thinking. One, of course, is sort of my own biography a little bit. Uh, sort of I was born in the 1980s in South Africa, sort of a time of very... To a very turbulent time as the old apartheid era was dying, and the the new was uh, you know struggling to be born. You know, we have these massive transformations with Mandela coming out of jail in, in 1990. You know the the types of uh, social change that occurred and the type of new uh, constitutional order that was uh, put into place, and that had me thinking quite a bit about like. My own social identity as sort of a white man in South Africa versus some of the people I was going to school with. I was going to a government school, and there were people who were were you know uh, black who were coming from the, the township around the corner, um, and we had very different trajectories through lives, and also different types of expectations. We had different uh, upbringings, and we had different uh, life courses ahead of us. Uh, I ended up sort of being very lucky in some respect to be able to pursue my studies abroad where a lot of my you know friends and classmates that was not their life trajectory just simply from the from where they were born and the types of social structures around them from the you know this apartheid you know, transformation and then into the post-apartheid era their life chances were radically different from mine i was starting to think a little bit about the types of unfairness you know like at a very basic fundamental level here and then a society trying to address that type of unfairness in a way that was very complicated, uh, sort of oftentimes, you know, know, constrained too. And so that was certainly one vector that got me thinking about good luck, bad luck, fortune, misfortune, the types of institutional structures that maintain, reproduce, allow some people to succeed, allow other, you know, know, uh, create disadvantages for others and the like. And so these were the types of thoughts that had organized my early political consciousness. And then when I uh, did my studies abroad, I did them in, I did my PhD in Canada and 
I went to Canada in 2008, just as the Great Recession had hit. And so I was then starting to uh, teach classes about capitalism and modernity, media and modernity, and we're talking about liberalism, conservatism, uh, communism, and these grand 20th century debates to students themselves who were soon about to graduate onto a market that wasn't really hiring. And so their life chances were um, weak from the very beginning. And so I still start to, start to think about all this like very heavy social theory. People, my students were very excited about it, but they also had very questions about practicality, what they were going to do, they had their anxieties about their, their careers, their jobs. And we sort of know that, you know, uh, how you enter a market depends, determines how you enter a job market, determines your eventual success within it. And so these are the kinds of thoughts that I was thinking about, you know, questions of uh, social position, questions of markets, how these, you know, give some people direct uh, uh, advantages and disadvantages to some people as opposed to other people. And so these are the broader questions about social inequality that the book is really about and tries to think through, uh, perhaps sometimes a little bit too intellectually, I suppose, but these are the, the central driving uh, concerns. You know, this very basic unfairness and the types of institutions that are built on top of that that compound that unfairness. And the uh, main focus is on the scribe status, right? Those things that are involuntary and uh, are you know, somewhat happenstance is basically uh, what they were born into. Exactly, right. exactly. And it's how these, you know, things that are outside of your orbit of control are made salient, you know, how they are made political identities, how they come to matter, how they are given such significant weight. Because, I mean, many of these things, you know, your heights, your personality, uh, your, you know, your, your racial ascription, Almost all of these things are outside of your control, right? But yet they matter a great deal for you know, how you're how you are both perceived, how you're recognised, uh, how you are positioned, how you're fixed, and how you know groups respond to respond to you. And so it's very much about how persons themselves are placed, and again these very basic features that we have that are just are contingent for all of us, you know. Uh, are made salient or not made salient? Where, how are these? How do some features get uh, have quite a lot of weight, and why do, do others not? It's interesting because I have the same the same conversations with my students who bring up the when, when I start talking about things like race and sex and other ascribed statuses that a person has at birth, and uh, the response is often, "Well, this is about me," or "This isn't about me." And I said, well, it, it it might not, or it might be, but and it doesn't eliminate any chance for me being able to achieve certain things or uh, reduce your likelihood to achieve these things, increase or reduce your likelihood of achieving something. But instead, it increases or decreases the likelihood. It doesn't mean you're not or that you're going to, yes. but instead it, it increases or decreases likelihood. Yes, and so that's one of the, I'd say, sort of a secondary uh problem of, of the book is to sort of recognize that people do do work they do do labor they they do deserve things and so how do we navigate the kinds of you know things that we deserve given how some of the features that may enable the things that we get are themselves subject to these contingencies and how they have been given political weight and so these are very thorny types of questions and you know the book itself sometimes itself gets a little bit uh, weedy into these types of 
of, of issues. But, you know, stepping back and taking a broader perspective, these are very charged political conversations that matter for our, for our moment right now, where we think about race, class, gender, who deserves what. We often think about politics, about who gets what, but there's also a moral component to how we start to justify you know, who gets what too. And we start to think about who deserves what and all the things that we deserve, do they line up with principles of justice and particularly social justice where we recognize the socially salient features of a person's, uh, 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 of, a, of a person themselves. As you say, all of these ascribed uh, characteristics. Yes, and then the econo- uh, economic piece of it that I saw is that these uh, fortunes or misfortunes that occur as a result of where a person is born involuntarily um, ha- have value. They, they have value. They, they have an economic value. They have a, an, a, a real economic outcome on the person who has more, more or less chances. Yes, no, exactly. I mean, to put it differently, like class matters. We we live in a capitalist society, and we know that you know the rich have more life chances than the poor, and but sometimes this doesn't quite get discussed very plainly in our societies. If it gets discussed at all, it's often through the lens of the deserving poor or the undeserving poor, uh, and that's I think a very toxic way to start thinking about you know uh, how we have a moral obligations to fellow members of society to say, okay, you know, you don't deserve because, or you do deserve because. And so we have a bit of a, a warped sense of what deserving means because we don't recognize that so much of what we deserve are said to deserve. Let's, let's say that so much of what we are said to deserve hinges upon these social identities, these social starting points, these class, uh, these class entry points. So it's really a book about class and contingency in some way, shape, or form. Excellent. So the um, one of the first questions I would like to uh, to focus on after what the what led you to writing this book is what you perceive to be fortune and misfortune. So these fortunes that you're writing about, what are they, and what are the misfortunes, and how do you conceptualize a person person being fortuitous or um, misfortuitous? So let's start with the fortune component. I think of that in, in sort of two senses. One is the the fortune, the the sort of the um, the Scrooge McDuck version of the fortune. One has the the bank vault with the gold coins, and you have have a fortune. There's a lot of abundance that you have. You have acquired a lot of wealth. People have fortunes. At the same time, you yourself have you know, a kind of fortune, or you know, sometimes people talk about it as a, a kind of fates. These are you know, factors beyond your control that guide you through life. And that sort of also gets a bit to the flip side about the misfortunes. Some of the many things that befall us, you know, are beyond our control. That's not to say we can't recognize them or anticipate them or try to adjust them, but they are things that sometimes are beyond ourselves to respond adequately to. And that's so that the misfortunes that bring a lot of ruin to people's lives. One of the things that we that I said that I think we have in capitalism is we tell these stories about you know, how people come to acquire fortunes and how some people come to have misfortune befall upon them. We tell these stories about someone like George Bezos, like that he has that he has worked out of his garage and he's made able to achieve all of this. And we, and we tend to forget some of the fine details that matter quite a bit. You know, his parents' uh, in early investments into his firm or things of that sort. We tend to, in the heroic narratives 
of uh, the of of the billionaire class at the moment, you know, their their social setting is sometimes overlooked. And the same way, you know, we think of uh, people who have had great misfortunes before them. We think of like to say American cities, for example, where there's a, a number of people who have been displaced and rendered uh, without a home. And we, you know, often the discourse in the United States is, you know. They that they have done things to themselves. They are drug addicts, or this, or they are that, and they, you know, and they are now a burden upon all of us, and we shouldn't be uh, uh, attending to them in any way, shape, or form. And so these, I think, are ways in which misfortune, uh, fortune, and misfortune have such a resonance in sort of our everyday talk, but we sometimes don't think sufficiently clearly about them. And so this is why I sort of preface the book by saying we need to be used a more of a political economic. Uh, perspective to understand what are the larger power dynamics behind these two outcomes that you know uh, people increasingly face. Not not to sort of uh, belabor the point a little bit, but increasingly we get in, into a world where there's such massive class decomposition that you really only have two options: either you become very very wealthy or you become very very poor. That hollowing out of the middle class has meant that these are only the, the really two options, and you know. We know that you're rich because some people are poor, and increasingly, you know, the fortunes that we have, that one person has is very much tied to the misfortunes that others have. Yeah, it reminds me of one of the uh, limitations, or you might even say weaknesses, of the Davis and Moore thesis, right? Of uh, those people who work hard will will uh, get the better rewards, and uh, meritocracy a meritocracy is somewhat of an of an illusion. Because who is merited and who is not is determined by some institutional, maybe political force, as you write in this in this book, and and also cultural ones. We have perceptions of say, you know, what is a good presidential candidate, and we have this idea. We imagine when we say these words, a certain kind of person comes comes to the mind, and so you know, you know, I, the ideal American president image is a kind of Joe Biden or Romney kind of figure, very tall, very slender, you know. You know, ha- has a look of wisdom on their face, has seen a bit of the world, but has managed to to a degree be successful in it. You know, we when when people think of the ideal American political candidate, Kamala Harris isn't in that conversation as an image, at least. So there's certainly these political, sociological, and certainly cultural factors uh, to uh, what we deem to be merit and worth and value. And that's interesting as well. You know, traditionally, the, some of the questions that you face and face off with in this book would have belonged to the political scientist, probably, or the economist. What about the this topic uh, provides us as sociologists with the place in studying uh, in, in studying this matter? What makes it a social phenomena? So we have to ex- people try and explain what happens to them. Through the various types of schema that they have at their disposal, one of the things I, I like about talk, when you, when I talk about good or write about good luck and bad luck, is these are kinds of concepts that people themselves use to sort of explain what happens in their lives. We have there are concepts within the sociological tradition that are very good, like intersectionality is a very very good concept. People have applied it very very well. Excellent. Same thing when it comes to to accumulated advantage and accumulated disadvantage. Very very apt. Very very suitable. But it sometimes doesn't quite get into the the vernacular. Both of these, both of those kinds of conceptualizations, don't really make space for happenstance and the, the sheer brute contingency of how we come into the world. 
I think there's a, there's a kind of way that this maybe also comes back a little bit to the project of the book, where it's the attempt to, to try talk about luck, that the, the, the luck that someone experiences within a capitalist setting to maybe say, well, capitalism itself doesn't organize rewards uh, and benefits in a fair manner. And so at the very most, at the very basic level, at, at, at the indisputable level of luck, you have you you are now chipping away at the at, at the raw features of, of capitalism, which talks about you know who gets what and why, you know, based upon you know your ability to own things. Uh, so this kind of gets into Marx's ideology and uh, making sense politically in terms of who is determined and not determined to be a prospect for prosperity, right? I mean, ideologies that come from politics, not persons, but, you know, politics as a, as an ideology. Yes. And so this is also one of the things that, going back to sort of the students in Vancouver that I was teaching, there are a number of people of a, of a very, who are of a conservative orientation to the world and uh, by inclination have uh, a sense uh, but aren't quite able to articulate that capitalism itself is fair and just. Yeah. You do the work, you get the reward. There's a kind of, and that sort of also is laid on by the kind of naturalizedness of capitalism itself. It's a system you know, we're born into and we, you know, our initial entry points into the world we tend to take as just, fair, and basic because we don't really have other points of comparison. We're, we're sort of very innocent like that as, as, we, as we, we come into the world. And so a lot of these uh, people I was talking to, these very conservative uh, advocates for capitalism, when you start to talk to them about why do they believe what they do believe about who gets what and why and who deserves what and why uh, and how does luck play a role into that, you know, they kept on coming into these pauses they couldn't quite they weren't able to articulate what when you confront them with these very basic questions about you know are you lucky or not lucky why do you have this your parents inheritances so on and so forth they just weren't able to quite articulate so in many senses talking about luck i think is a kind of ideological critique of our contemporary moment given also as you know uh piketty shows you know inheritances are such a salient uh, characteristic of our of our age. You know, we have these massive wealths that are bequeathed from one generation to another generation, and that's also a form of fortune that some people get, also connected to the misfortune of others. And uh, what, what did the people who were more uh, likely to have misfortunes, did you see that they even accepted that ideology that uh, it was their own wrongdoing that, that resulted in, in their misfortune? That's interesting because it, I found that a number of the Christian groups that I was friendly with, their type of Protestantism led them to say, to, to take an introspective approach about themselves, but not be very introspective about the society in which they lived. And so there's a kind of Protestant-ish work ethic that they still mobilized to explain why they hadn't got what they got or why they hadn't yet achieved what they had to achieve. And that itself was also buoyed by, you know, believe more, pray harder. You know, you know one, one needs to fulfill the tenets of Christian practice in order to, um, you know, have you know, good luck return. 
it wasn't quite articulated in terms of luck, but you know, you know, the doubting or you know, uh, saying or being uh, thinking badly about the luck that it, that had befallen you, was see almost seen as a bit of a test of faith. So, uh, so please, yeah, somewhat somewhat of an opiate of the masses, or um, if we want to flip it on its head, we'll go with Weber and Protestant ethic, right? Yes, yes. So there's there's certainly a lot of people who do are very bought into capitalist ideologies and trying to say, okay, well, I must work harder, so um, so on and so forth. But at the same time, and, I, and this is also to qualify some of, you know, some of our earlier remarks, I met a lot of people in Vancouver that had come from sort of working class backgrounds that sort of knew that they were getting screwed over by you know the the cascading effects of the Great Recession. A number of people you know, who were a little bit older than me that were trying to buy houses, for example, and suddenly, you know, um, they they didn't have the income to be able to, uh, or the, even the prospects of you know, of high, earning higher income, and so they certainly knew that there were these larger uh, financial circumstances that had shaped their lives. So to me, it's a you know it's a bit of both. There's there's a degree of consciousness. There's a, but there's also a fair amount of denial about uh, the system that we're in. I think you know this also gets back to your question about the sociological element over here is that we live, most of us sort of live with these lay categories that don't really encourage us to think much more broadly about our own lives and how we are living. We we tend to have a very impoverished public sociological imagination. or And that's not to sort of be critical of public sociologists. You know, they're doing a remarkable effort, but it's more the case that sort of, there's not really an appetite for sociological ways of explaining the world. You know, the press is more likely to go to economists, they're more likely to go to psychologists, they're more likely to go to even new age gurus than they are to come to sociologists, which is a shame in, in fact. Yeah, and I and I and I then I, I wonder whether and we could talk all day about this, whether sociology is a science or or if it's a, a you know, more philosophical and interpretive and, and, and maybe that's why Maybe maybe that's why the news tends to go to the economists who who have blatant answers more than they do questions, like the sociologists tend to have more of. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that, that the skills required to ask good questions are definitely different from the skills required to give good answers. But at the moment, you know, by by the luck that we have in our societies, we we live in a moment where you know we that there's a narrowing of the sociological questions that we're allowed to ask you know, they, you know there's a lot of intense debate particularly in the United States around culture war issues um, and you know sometimes these are deliberately provoked and stoked but you know that's in many ways to hijack a more broader sociological inquiry sort of settling in the public I mean not not to take this on a bit of a tangent but we see how how discourses around critical race theory was a very robust body of scholarship are simply denied. So you have simply denial of decades of decades of very, very good, robust empirical scholarship. Um, again, we get back to questions of intersectionality. These things are just denied in order to try preserve wealth. And, and throughout history, I mean, sociology, we, we've got, we, we've gotten far astray from the original um, big theories the uh, uh, that could explain, that could explain a, a large degree of phenomena simply through one or two theories. And I, you know, I think of Durkheim there and I think of Marx and I think of conflict theory and structural functional um, 
conflict perspective and structural functional perspective. And, and it's been a long time since we've had some of those grand theories. Mm. I mean, there's good reasons why you've gone and done lots of micro sociological studies and it's produced a tremendous wealth of empirical studies. But, you know, I, th I think at least my impression is the law sociologists are working within the paradigms of grand theory. They're just simply not as announced as they might have been in previous decades. But I, I think in many cases, you know, that's a bit of a shame. You know, I, th I think that it's often the, 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 the big and the broad that captures our students' imagination. If I go back to those classes at a session in Vancouver about modernity, about you know, liberalism, conservatism, fascism, communism in the 20th century, these are big debates, big struggles. And I think that sometimes, you know, students, you know, love these big stories. They can sort of see where they fit in, what side do they fit in, where do they see themselves, where, where do they want to reinforce things. So I think there's a lot of value in, you know, telling the big stories for undergrads. It helps them get a bit of a sense of where they want to plant their flag. And then the micro and, you know, the thing that we all try to get at, and that is the meso, right? Being able to connect the macro and the micro together to say, well, here are the nuances, but uh, here at the middle ground, here's what we can say about most situations. Mm. I suppose that's sort of where I found myself at the moment, and maybe we can come back to this uh, at the end of the, the conversation, is in my new sort of roles as a policymaker, trying to think about how to use social theory, how to leverage social theory, you know, uh, in ways that can help persuade policymakers. I think that this is where uh, meso theory, as it, as it were, uh, is sort of very good at trying to bridge the grand and the small and bring value, uh, bring the best of both uh, to, uh, you know, ideally to people who are in a position to make, to change things, whether they do or don't. That's a, those are other separate discussions about power and the like, but I'll, sp I'll spare a rant on that for, for, for your uh, listeners. Oh, yeah, get, uh, a good friend of mine, Gary Allen Fine, uh, sociologist, calls it the hinge, right? It's really where the, the rubber meets the road, where big theory and small theory connect to create a uh, community. Yes. Yeah, but uh, again, we don't need to talk about that. We're talking about your book right now. So uh, when we talk about a political economy, we're not fortune tellers. However, we are talking about fortune and misfortune. Where, where do you see this going into the future in a um, modern, postmodern, or never modern world, depending on which perspective you see it as? Yeah, which grand theory theorist of the day do you want to you know, align with? Um, yeah, no, predictions are very, very hard. One of the things that sort of is very interesting to me at the moment is looking at how the Biden administration is turning towards industrial policy. And you have a little bit of this talk about, is this, are we moving to a post-neoliberal order? And, you know, a lot of that's just for the clicks, as, as it were. Um, but there is a bit of a sense that things are somewhat changing, that, that, that our political economic uh, circumstance yeah, is rushing a little bit and, you know, the, the new is struggling to be born. So I think that we are, there's a bit of a conjuncture at the moment where progressive politics, if that's where you where you, you plant your flag, has opportunities and moments to try to advocate a little bit more strongly and much more clearer terms about fairness, about more redistributive programs, about the need to uh, you know provide uh, reasons for the working class, the middle class, to be invested in society. You know, this also has to do with you know uh, supporting institutions and giving people reasons to be invested in the democratic uh, institutions that 
uh, and democratic mechanisms at their disposal. So these are the elements that that are on the table. I would say, as for you know, as for these moments, I think that progressive movements uh, should absolutely try seize them as as much as they can and try to shift our political economic apparatus. I, I think there are more things on the table than we sometimes uh, acknowledge. Well, yeah, and, and and fortune and and misfortune in your book is more than just a. Uh, is more than just a uh, call it cliche or or more than just a buzzword. These are these are real words that manifest in everyday life, and and your work in policy, I think, has a real implication for fortune and misfortune in terms of how it plays out, and policy as it is written and and as it is practiced and put into place at the local level. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about with fortune is mis and misfortune is neighborhoods. And how neighborhoods are established with, you know, the wealthy gated communities as compared to uh, the ghettos or the low low income neighborhoods of um, of some communities. And uh, one of the solutions that I've uh, read across a variety of of books and journal articles is this idea of mixed housing and more equitable housing rather than separating people from one another but living among each other and and that would be more of an equitable distribution of fortune let's see that that's something that goes back to the start of our conversation coming from south africa we have this intense history of you know apartheid spatial planning right and so the township where black people live lived and are living uh is close to the industrial site and so there's sort of certainly you know uh, uh, race orientated uh, health outcomes living next to industrial sites because they were intended to be the labor force to to staff those those industrial sites and then you have the quite gated community often in you know the much more desirable location you know, more beautiful areas and again there's been a lot of changes in post-apartheid South Africa there's the the middle class and the upper class are much more racially racially diverse uh, uh, than than ever before, but you still have these you know these types of economic and racial stratifications that are, you know that that sort of certainly do feature, and so coming from this background and sort of having it be so natural, when I moved to Canada to to see you know mixed uh, uh, income housing, that was something that had almost blew my mind. This was one thing to read about it when you study. It's another thing to to live it, right? Like I was starting to live in these kinds of neighborhoods. I was starting to commute through them. I was starting to see them. And even that sort of that basic experience, and it, it sounds very trivial, but that basic experience to, to see a society organized differently, that it just didn't, it didn't have to happen to be this way. Like we can change our luck. We can create institutions to try organize the fortune and misfortune that we have. We have policy dis- uh, mechanisms that I suppose will, you know, policy analysts will be able to, if they just started b- bullet pointing, listing bullet points about what mechanisms we have at our disposal to try reduce the social inequality, they could go on for an hour just listing bullet points. So we have these mechanisms. We, we well know these things. It's now a question of, of power uh, coalitions, and trying to sort of win decisive battles for key positions, not only in the cultural space, but specifically in the institutional space and in the electoral space. I think if you don't have met, if you don't have the power to reallocate and shuffle and diminish the fortunes and misfortunes of others, if you don't, or if you don't have policymakers and elected officials that can see the connections between 
the outcomes of one group and the outcomes of another group and how these are organized by race, class, gender, so on and so forth, then you're not really going to be able to change much. And it's where reality comes into play, right? This this idea of policies and practices of these policies manifest these fortunes into real life experiences, either having or not having. Absolutely, absolutely. That's well said. Excellent. Well, unfortunately, we have come to the uh, end of our uh, time here today. However, you know, one yearning question that I, that I have for you, Scott, is what are you working on next? What do we get to talk about the next time we get on new books in sociology? Uh, yeah, this is where this is the problem of promising to return. Um, uh, one of the things that I'm very interested in is continuing this work on democratic life and more importantly, democratic infrastructures. I'm trying to think about what are the kinds of infrastructures we need to incentivize, prioritize, entrench democratic life. Um, some of these things may be electoral, some of them are institutional, uh, but these are these are the questions that are that are that I, you know, at the on the tip of my tongue, I'm not able to articulate them as well as I would like. But these, this is where my broad interest is at the moment. So I have, I have some thoughts and uh, hopefully I'll be able to share them with you soon enough. Yeah, you know, all of your, you have a string of research and one of the things that I think we as, as uh, academicians do uh, and uh, scholars do across time is figure out that we have a common strain and somehow or another all of our research comes together under uh, under a single label, right? Yeah, no, that's the, I, I suppose both the, the pleasure and the pain of being an academic is that, yeah. Your work starts to drift in creative ways, and then you have to redescribe yourself. And you're like, "Whoa, what are the four words I used to describe myself now?" And so, I try and uh, every two years to change one of those words. <laughs> I suppose that's the way I'm trying to work at the moment. Yeah, say uh, a jack of all trades, a, a master of none. Well, I, I hope to have some mastery, but we'll we'll leave, we'll let the readers decide that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's been great to have you on the show again, Scott, and I look forward to, to having you on, on the next episode of New Books in Sociology. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure to be here.